Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of The Real Story Podcast. Okay, today's guest I am geeking out over. She is one of Rightway's favorite clients ever. Just an incredible human being. One of the most inspiring women I have had the pleasure to work with and the pleasure to know, Ify Abekwe. Now, Ify is a little bit different than a lot of our clients who come on the show in that she is the principal attorney of Abekwe Law. Um, she is such an advocate for women, for the black and brown community. She is involved in so many incredible causes. She is highly educated, highly intuitive, and so driven around her mission um, that we will get into today on the show in estate planning for the underserved community. And when Ify came to me, she wanted to write a book. We were referred to each other by a mutual friend. And I was immediately taken with her, her background and her concept because it was so unique and something that is not often talked about. But her amazing path to publication and the way that she showed patience and advocated for herself, it's its absolutely what I wish for every author who is entering this crazy world and either wants to self-publish or wants to go the traditional publishing route. If he is such an example of how you can get paid what you're worth, you can wait for the right yes, you can really empower yourself and surround yourself with the right information, the right tools, the right people to put you on the path to success. And that's success that you define for yourself. I absolutely loved our conversation today. Again, she's not only a phenomenal person, a phenomenal businesswoman and author, but she is really changing the game for estate planning in general. And if you're someone who's like, oh, well, estate planning's that, I mean, that doesn't apply to me. Just listen to this conversation um, because it absolutely applies to you. And it's something we should all be thinking about. Um, I hope you enjoy this incredible conversation with the one and only Ify Abekwe. Hey guys, I'm Rhea Fry, best-selling author, business owner, wife, mother, but most of all, I'm a human. And I'm Joe Tower, entrepreneur, producer, editor, husband, son, and I am also a human. As writers, we're always digging behind the story of publishing, ego, process, to get to the deeper truth of who we are and why we're here. While we're still pursuing that mission of the Right Way podcast, we wanted a platform where we could talk about being writers as well as being human. Now we'll be spending each episode talking with real people about real shit. This is the real story. Okay, first of all, Ify. Welcome. I feel like this has been a long time <laughs> in the making. <laughs> it um, has been. It it's has. Been. Yeah. I mean, you're the first guest we've actually had on the podcast in a really long time. We've rebranded to the real story. So we're going to talk about your writing journey, but just also some other kind of, you know, quote unquote, real stuff. But I love having clients on because I feel like you have a lot of insight that a lot of potential authors, people who want to get published kind of want and need. Um, which we will get into. But first, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are, your background, and really kind of why you wanted to write a book in the first place. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I am a weekly listener, so I am all caught up and up to date with every episode. 
Um, my name's Ify. I am an estate planning lawyer by profession. I speak, I mother four kids, I'm married, and I got an idea in my head one day that I wanted to write a book because in my industry as an estate planning lawyer, I'm the type that does wills and trusts, powers of attorney and things like that. I noticed that number one, very few women do it. Very few people of color do it. And consequently, most of the population is not served with something that's super important. And I just really wanted to dispel the myth that you have to be a Hilton or a Kardashian to get an estate plan. And I thought a book would be a great way to put that out there in the world. I love that. I love that so much. And in fact, when you and I worked on the book proposal, your original subtitle was so fantastic. Do you remember what that was? It was like, yes. And I think that actually might be the dang. subtitle that we <laughs> use because my, Tell everyone what that is. yes, it's a willpower and it is a step-by-step -step estate planning guide for anyone who isn't an old, rich white guy. Yes. I, I remember when we were first talking about doing your book proposal, I was just over the moon about just you and, and the subject matter, but that subtitle, I was like, yes, because it's so clear and so specific about what it is in, in general. Um, but yeah, I want to talk about this kind of book proposal process because it's something people are, are definitely interested in. A lot of people like you who are experts in their field feel like they want or need a book to, to really grow their business, grow their brand. But so you had this idea we got introduced. You came to me for the book proposal, which we kind of, you know, knocked out. You, you were a dream client. <laughs> and then, and then we pitched you to agents. Um, and then you were very, I mean, very quickly, I feel like you got a book deal, um, in a, in a pretty short span of time, like you were snatched up by an agent, you got that book deal. So can you tell listeners kind of walk them through that process a little sure. bit? what it was like to land an agent and then actually get the book deal. Yeah. If I could just rewind back to the point of what the heck is a proposal? Yes. <laughs> I think that some of your listeners are definitely book people, authors. They, they know the whole process of how the sausage is made. But for someone like me, I really, and you know, it, it happened in so many ways where you're like, I can't believe you did that. And which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but I didn't even know what a book proposal was. I just knew that if somebody else knew how to do it, that I didn't want to figure out how to do it on my own because it seemed like a lot of work. And that's where um, I, I got a wonderful referral to you from Clubhouse of all random places. Random, very random. random. <laughs> and so working with you was a dream. I had done a lot of pre-work because originally I was going to self-published and I just kind of wrote the outline and, and did all that work. And so when I, it came to putting the proposal together, I found that I had so many of the things already written out and planned, but I just didn't have them synthesized in a way that was marketable to a, a literary agent. And so when we finally finished, and it didn't take long, although I think everything takes long, 
No, it did not take long. I mean, you, I feel like you, again, were so on top of it. You knew what you wanted to say. You knew you had done that pre-work, as you mm-hmm. said. And so the process actually went like it was supposed to. And it doesn't, it doesn't always, because a lot of people have an idea, but then when they sit down, they're just like, well, I don't, I don't know, maybe I could write this. Maybe I could write that, mm-hmm. but you were very clear. And this is also so important. You have such a niche space. You're not writing a health and wellness book. You're not writing a business book. You know where this is going to fit on a shelf, mm-hmm. you know exactly what you're talking about. So I think that helped you with the speed of the process. Yeah. And I think that after getting that monumental task done in not so long of a time period, I would say maybe I thought it would take me two weeks. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm that type of person. I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to knock this out, but it didn't. I think it took six weeks, which is also not insane from start to finish to have a polished document ready to be made even more beautiful and send out. It was not long. I'd have to look at the timeline, but it was, it was amazing. And it was wonderful to cross that off the list. Then when you pitched it to uh, literary agents, I think I got two responses back. One was within a week because I was in Las Vegas for my 10-year anniversary. And one of the literary agents who was interested wanted to talk to me. And I wasn't going to work, but I was so excited. I was like, I have to take this call. And so I was just shocked that people were already immediately interested in the book and they had suggestions, but nobody by and large wanted to change anything. It was just something that resonated with them. And I, I think I ended up talking to three agents, but which, which is amazing. So I have to say, so normally when you send out a query letter, it can take, gosh, it can take two weeks to even hear back to get a request for the proposal. You were hearing from agents who wanted to hop on the phone with you because they'd already reviewed the proposal within a week. I mean, you got requests the day of, and I think that's just such a testament to, again, the unique hook of your book, who you are, how you presented it. It was, it was really kind of a masterclass in what you should do. It was amazing. That was, that was the, the most exciting part, I think, because I know that that literary agent is the middle person yes. to get to, because I can't just go up to any publisher and say, hey, I'm here. I got this idea. I've got a nice proposal. And that part was where I thought I would get stuck. But what if nobody wants this? What if it takes a year? What if it takes two years? You know, you hear all these stories of people who have just been out there just trying to get an agent for so long. And that, that really was something I tried not to let discourage me. And then when I started seeing results and I wasn't, I'm not a celebrity, I'm not somebody with a huge platform even, it just made me think, oh my gosh, I'm even more determined now. This person also sees it, these people see it and would work with me, this is a thing, which made me even more excited about the entire project. Well, and because you had multiple interests from multiple agents, how did you make that decision, number one, on who to go with? Because this is a really big issue I see with a lot of clients and a lot of first-time authors is they just want that yes. So they'll jump and they'll say yes immediately. Not only did you not say yes immediately, you took your time in signing that contract. We're going to really talk about how you negotiated both your literary agency contract and your book deal contract. But yeah, how did you decide on your agent, Regina Brooks? And then how, you know, how did you even know to kind of negotiate and really, really look through that contract without immediately saying yes? Well, I'll I'll talk about the first part. 
deciding on an agent for me, I, I spoke to three who were really interested and um, I spoke to the initial two rather quickly. And then Regina was on vacation. I don't know if you remember this. She was, she was on vacation. Yes, she was. <laughs> and I, fun fact, I think your listeners should know is that Regina was your very first she was an infidelity book that I wrote a million years ago called The Cheat Sheet. Uh, oh my gosh, so long ago. But I had, I had kind of forgotten. She wasn't in my arsenal. And I was like, oh my gosh, she is so tough. She's so good. And and again, this is kind of like a matchmaking mm-hmm. service. So yes, continue. Yeah. And so that wasn't even someone that you were regularly in the business of sending people to. It really is really important that you're proposal goes to somebody who is well-suited for your idea. Yes. And so because you had said that, I waited for her. And so I told the other literary agents that I'm talking to one more person. It was like a dating, you know, before I decide. It's like my version of the bachelorette, right? Who am I going to get my rose to? And I just waited until I got to speak to her. And when I spoke to her, it was clear because she was able to relate. She was able to tell me other projects she had pushed that I have on my kids' bookshelves that I watch on Netflix, you know, that were so aligned with the sort of thing that I wanted to talk about, which is a lot of issues having to do with race, the wealth gap, equity, women's rights, being inclusive. And so it made it a no-brainer. Now, when I got her contract, I, uh, this is my 15th year practicing law. So there is not a contract that I just get. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got it. (laughs) Absolutely. I read it. In fact, I hired a lawyer to look at it for me because I didn't know anything about the literary law or or anything about um, publishing or getting a literary agent. I don't know anything about that. But when I had that done, I think she, I don't think she had had that kind of pushback before. Because I do think the general just mode of operation when it comes to getting a literary agent is just to say, oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Somebody. Anybody. But I have to say too, Regina's contract isn't as standard as some literary agency contracts. Like typically they're one to two pages, very, very succinct, straightforward. Mm -hmm. This one was a little bit more complicated. Can you say what kind of um, lawyer that you hired for people who want to? Yes. And and I'm trying to think um, what title she calls herself. I keep saying a literary lawyer. It could be a publishing lawyer. If you hear this and you want to reach out to me, I'm happy to give you my person if you are in Texas. Um, But or New York, actually, she's licensed in both places. And so um, her contract was was immediate. How would I know one to two pages was normal? Thankfully, I had you. I'm used to long contracts. And I kept seeing all these clauses that I was like, I don't know if this is something I want to sign away. Because what if I become the next Oprah through this? I don't know. You know, if you think about it, this is the sort of thing I would always tell my clients. It can be so exciting to sign on the dotted line to get the next step going in whatever it is, whether it's a, a job or a project that you want the business, right? You want to have the opportunity. The contract matters when you start to disagree. Yes. If you start to disagree, that's when you go back to the contract and say, what did we agree on? I always hold that in my mind, whether or not I'm working with the most amazing person or not, it's just ingrained in me. I once had our home insurance, um, homeowners insurance 
sent over and I found so many mistakes. And she wrote me an email and she said, in all my years of selling this insurance, I have never had anyone come back and make changes. So that's the type of person I already am. But I and so, yeah. And you did that. Um, I had, I have a very like standard right way. Oh, yeah. I did it to yours. Redlining, but I love that because I'm like, yeah, these are all standard. And I can't tell you how many people don't even, they don't even read it. They're just so excited. Like, yeah. And I've never luckily knock on wood, have never had an issue with any of the contracts, but you have to read them. And it's one you of the to. biggest mistakes authors make, whether they're veteran or newbies. Um, it is just not, not only not understanding how to read a contract, but just not even digging into what you just said. Like, do I want to sign this away? Because you are signing so much away, usually not with a literary agent, but yeah. when you get to the publishing contract, yes. oh, it is oh so notoriously one-sided. So and yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And even back to your point of doing that to yours, I did that to yours because I understood your contract. Sure. If it's something I don't understand, then I have to go and find the help to understand yes. it. I don't ever want to assume there's things my husband will have me look over and he's like, oh yeah, I got a contract. Can you look it over? And I'm like, I don't do this. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know what the standard is in this industry for software or something like that. You need to hire a lawyer who does that. And that's as specific as it gets sometimes. Even lawyers have to hire lawyers, even lawyers who don't want to pay the money I don't want to pay. I didn't want to pay her. I didn't. So can I ask you how much, so was that borrowing an hour of her time, not borrowing, paying for an hour of her time? Or was it like, can you give us a ballpark with what someone can maybe expect to, yeah. to pay if they want to hire someone to review it? It depends on your state. It depends on the lawyer. I don't remember what her hourly, hourly rate was, but I would say it was in the two to $300 yeah. an hour range. And so that would be something that is a, is a big investment, especially if you have a client like me who <laughs> I want to ask all the questions. And then I also had her sit in on a call with us. So it's usually an hourly fee that you're paying for that. You know, there are some people I'm sure that charge four, 500, 600, you can find a lawyer to charge you anything, but sure. that's something to just keep in mind. I would be lying to you if I said that putting this book out wasn't an investment in resources. Oh, it is. Definitely. And I think that's the part that people who are trying to do it on their own need to weigh is at what point is it, does it make sense to get help versus to wait years? And it, it, it to me, it's automatically, I'm going to get the help. But if you can't, you know, that might be something to save up for and really invest in. And I do think that's what pushes a lot of projects. I really do. Do you think, because, you know, engaging in a book proposal in general is expensive. Um, it's a little bit laborious. It, it mm -hmm. takes time though. You move through it quickly. Do you think looking back and not, not just because it's me, put that aside, was that worth the investment knowing what you got out of it in the end? Absolutely. And I will be honest. I did not want to pay you. Of course I didn't. <laughs> I yeah. didn't. I really didn't. And I feel that because I have clients and I, I make pitches to them and I propose my services to them as an estate planning attorney. And even if they have the money, they don't want to give that to me. It's yeah. like, is there not, isn't there a better way? Why should I hand this over? But right. I will tell you this, when you get the results, I think the other part of it is I don't know literary agents. I don't know this industry. I don't have connections. 
I don't have the name that someone will automatically open my email first. And even if you have that for three people that could help me or one person, that's one more person that I have. So not only did I find working with someone who is you're very <laughs> successfully published, but you also have connections and you have a thought leadership in the area and you, you get people to listen to you, right? And this is not an ad for you, but I'm just saying this is your space. And so that is what I was also investing in was access, honestly. Access, 100%. And I mean, I hate that it's kind of, you know, it's like any other industry where it really is, unfortunately, who you know, but I yeah. have found when I send something to an agent, they will 1000% look at it. Mm -hmm. And I used to be, you know, an author left to my own devices and I would flood the market with query letters yeah. and never even get them read. There is such importance in establishing those relationships and in that trust. So whatever I'm sending, and I, I don't say yes to everything. Yes. And I'm very careful with what I send because that's my reputation on the line as well, you know, sending out quality work and with you. So when you signed with Regina, you know, I was expecting maybe a full overhaul of the proposal. A lot of times, you know, we'll work so hard on a proposal. It will land with an agent. If they have an editorial eye or a different idea, they'll mm -hmm. have to scrap it and start over. But for you, it was kind of off to the races, right? Like she was yeah. ready to, to pitch it to editors. We, I think we changed the title. <laughs> Which always happens. And I love the new title. Me Real too. Title. I love it. Um, I hope they definitely want it. But yeah, I literally, I was like, <gasps> I don't want to go through the process oh, of editing no. this. And she's no. like, okay, I've started pitching. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> I think what I had to send her was the version in Word. And yep. not on oh. Google. Right. And literally I said, you have no changes. It was, it was just so encouraging because that's momentum, right? Yeah, it is momentum. And so she aggregated a list. So you landed the agent and, you know, sending to editors is much like sending to agents. So your agent aggregates this list of editors at publishing houses who are the people who offer you money for your book. So she sent that out and then, and then what happened? Well, I didn't know the list. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't really involved. And I know agents do it in all kinds of ways. Yep. It really wouldn't have mattered to me because this is going to sound so bad to say. I don't know if say I should it. say it. Say this it. is the real story. Okay. Yes, this the, is the real story. <laughs> the publisher I went with, I had never even heard of them oh, a that's, day that's in my a, life. A thousand percent. See that, that I'm so glad you said that actually, because a lot of nonfiction authors or again, experts in their space, they don't study the publishers, the publishing imprints. You might read the books, but very rarely, unless you are in the business or an author, are you looking at the spine, seeing who that publisher is? So I think that's extremely normal. You don't, you're not studying these are the top agents. These are the top editors. It's, I mean, that is a hundred percent normal. And I actually think that's more helpful because sometimes authors will have this, oh, I want this one editor. I have to have yeah. this one editor. And if I don't have them, then my life is over. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll talk to that dream editor and they don't connect with them. So I think right. going in kind of blind and really basing it on how you felt talking to the person who is interested in you yeah. and your book that speaks volumes to me. Yeah. And it was, it was really a, a situation where um, 
and I, I know this from Regina, she had pitched the editor of an uh, imprint of Hachette. It's actually brand new, one year old imprint. It's super niche. And I'm just, oh, it's like that imprint was created because I was writing a book. That's how it feels. Yes, I'm yes, just like, yes. how is this happening? And they initially had said no. That's right. That's right. Did they, they give you said no? Why? I think because I didn't have um, the platform. I'm not, and they represent a lot of celebrities and bestsellers. That's what Legacy Lit um, Books says as part of their thing. And I am neither. Um, well, I might be a bestseller, but I'm yeah, not. Yeah, I was going to say, don't don't limit yourself. Like <laughs> maybe they see things. Yeah. And Regina, being the wonderful agent she is, repitched it. Oh, love that so much. Yeah. And then we got a meeting and had a conversation. And when I tell you very, I love sales just as part of my job. I love to convince people. I don't think I've ever sold myself harder than I did on that call. So you sold yourself. See, that's very interesting because sometimes the editor spends the whole call trying to sell you, but you were selling yourself, I guess, because this was the repitch. Yeah, it was the repitch, which I didn't even know and that they had said a definitive no, because it then took a longer time, right? And it wasn't a long time. To me, I want to know within the week, I'm with you too. <laughs> this took maybe about six weeks again, right? The entire process was not long, but to me, I just thought, oh God, this is the longest publishing yeah. <laughs> molasses. I just wait, right? <laughs> yeah, little did I know. And so- when we were on the call, it was very much about, it was a very well-rounded conversation, but whenever I had an opportunity to share my project idea, I certainly did. And yeah. so if I could leave listeners with something is believe in your idea, you have nothing to, to lose when you get these opportunities, whether it's with a literary agent or with a publisher, believe in yourself. The worst they can tell you is no. Yes, right? exactly. And you just need that one you, you just, just need one. Up. Yes. Yeah. So something that is so incredible that no author knows how to do, they don't know that they can do it. You didn't even know that you could do it is you got an offer from this amazing imprint. And rather than jumping and saying, yes, you went back and you negotiated for more money and not just like a little bit. I mean, it was a substantial chunk because you're like, this is what I'm worth. This is what my book's worth. Can you talk about that again? Number one, how did you know that you could do that? And what part of you initiated that conversation mm -hmm. with Regina? Um, and then, you know, Regina talking to your editor. So we got this wonderful offer. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, I think it was a great offer. It was a great offer. Great and offer. my, I am Nigerian by birth and we are a negotiating people. I'm also a lawyer and everything is negotiable to me. And the first thing I did was say, all right, let me pull out my spreadsheet on what this is cost and how much I have already put into this. That, How that. much was the proposal, all the pre-work before I started working with Rhea, um, the lawyer's fees. And I started adding it up and knowing that I might also be responsible for some marketing and <laughs> other expenses, I know, yes. minus my agent's 15% fee and taxes because, yes. you know, life. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, I can't, I cannot, I cannot abide um, of course I would have taken it, but I, I told my agent to go back and ask for 50% more than they had offered. And they countered 
and I accepted their offer. And so I got more money by just asking. I didn't know I could do it. I didn't know that you couldn't do it. You know what I mean? I didn't know either way. It's just something that on paper, I was like, I really don't want to go into the hole. Like I'm happy to come out even in all of this at the end of the road, which I don't think I will. I do think it is actually profitable with the offer that I was given. I mean, marginally, Uh, (laughs) but nonetheless, you know, when you're thinking about it, it's like, if you can get to the end and get what you want, how much would it cost for you to do that? Even if you break even, right? And that's kind of how I looked at this whole process. This is not the most profitable thing I've ever done in my life for the hours and the expense and the the self-doubt and just the pages of words (laughs) and edits right? It's not something that I would say, oh my gosh, it's just been, you know, no, it's taken a lot of energy and and resources. And so if you can find your way to justify that just financially, if I can get here, what could that do for my career? Or even if you're a person who just needs to get that book out, like just the release of it all. What what is that value to you? And that's how I really look at the entire process. And I mean, you're approaching it with a business hat on and a business mindset. And these are the steps that a lot of authors don't take to sit down and actually go through the numbers because Mm -hmm. so much about this business is unknown. You say it's not profitable, but you could sell a hundred thousand copies. You could sell a hundred thousand copies. I'm just talking about getting to the, that actual product. Like you just had your new book come out and you can hold it. What is that? process work because it's just part it's the preliminary part of it honestly and and what I see what I've done and I'm going to be completely honest I have just even with this launch for instance I was like I'm not hiring a publicist this time I'm not doing it well I panicked and I ended up hiring a publicist a much more um economical it was 1500 bucks a month they were doing a lot of things handling things which was great but then we did a down price for one of my last books and not only was that like $1,600. Then I was like, well, I'll throw some ads on top of that, which was like $2,500. And then with the, the fees that come out, it's like, I have to sell so many thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of this book before I ever see a dime from it. And I'm already putting more money into it. And I've done that book over book. And at some point you have to ask number one, what kind of ROI you want to get on this, um, on this whole process, because sometimes it's, it's not monetary. It might be, you know, hitting a list, reaching, you know, readers that you've never done before, but you have to work through all of that beforehand and ask yourself what it's worth, how much money you're willing to spend in each phase, because there are phases when you launch, it's going to be a totally different ball game. You're going to have to look at if you're going to hire anyone and if that's mm-hmm. going to be more digital marketing or publicity um because those are two very different things but i just love that you advocated for yourself mm-hmm. and thought to ask i mean why not but one thing you did bring up um when we were just talking about the writing of this book because the proposal is a beast of a process but mm-hmm. writing the book is something else but you had a moment where you were like, what am I doing? I feel like I'm having imposter syndrome. Yes. I feel like everyone feels like that in the nonfiction world. And why do you think that is like, you've, you got the, you got the agent, you got the book deal, you negotiated even more. They want it. They, you have been validated, but you still have that 
momentary panic. <laughs> so what, what do you think that's about? And why do so many people have that sense of imposter syndrome? Yeah. I always see myself as a visionary person where I can see what's coming, right? Or I can see a trend. Like I've always had that gift and I kind of really like my life. Mm -hmm. And so part of my hesitation is if this does well and it changes my life, what will that mean for my future? Yes. And I don't know it that clearly. Of course, I'm not some sort of a mind reader or a, a clairvoyant. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, that is a fear of mine is success. Sure. I'm afraid to succeed oh or yes. be known for yes. doing this. And I do it anyway, but I do it with a lot of um, just trepid uh, trepidation. Yes. I, you, what you were saying is so vital and I want people to really think about it because I, that's my number one question when I'm talking to new writers or potential clients is what, how do you define success? What does that look like to you? And a lot of us say the same things, right? Like, oh, I want to get on the Today Show and do all these things, mm -hmm. which is cool. But sure. that comes with such a massive responsibility. Like I say, I want wild, you know, success. What I've even done just with launching the book, I did a 25 city radio tour yesterday that started at 6.45 in the morning, you know, went all day, which was really fun. But with all the events and you stack everything on and running a business and it's, there is a price that mm -hmm. you pay for every bit of success that you have, every event that you say yes to, it does take you away from yes. your family, your work, your real life. And there is such a price that we don't often really sit down and think what's going to work well for my life. Like what yeah. feels good to me. And I think all of us are just, we get the stars in our eyes and we want to hit it big, but when you start thinking about what that actually takes, it, it can be a little overwhelming. Yeah. I definitely think that I've been listening to some of your podcast episodes on this, creating what that looks like for you, yes. you know, and I'm like, I hope you win the Vermont house. I want to come. Oh see God. It. So, I mean, I'm just like, please, but if we don't, we don't, but I just absolutely, but it was so funny. Cause I was like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> like that's the sort of space you envision yourself Yes. Just really relishing and living in whether or not that's actually going to happen now or in the future or whatever, just understanding that that's the feel. I relate to that so strongly. The feel I want and what I want is to still be at home. Yes. I want, I have four children. My oldest is eight. My youngest is one. I, I want to be here yeah, with course. them. Of course, you know, no matter what stratosphere this goes to. And so when you ask me what the hesitancy or the imposter syndrome is, it's that it's that if I get this out, I get it out. And then people will know, right. For this getting out. Hey, yes. when I get it out, because I signed that contract. Thank you for the yes, clarification. Yes. When I get this out, people will know. And then I will be the person who put this out into the world. My kids will read it. Their kids will read it. It is what I'm leaving a legacy and I'm a legacy builder. And I just want it to be so good, but not so good that I don't write it. Right? 100%. And you know, with the, the cool thing, a lot of people gripe about the publishing industry, traditional publishing industry, like, oh, it takes so long because your book will not come out until 2024. Mm -hmm. However, 
that's a couple more years for your kids to grow, a couple yeah. more years for you to feel into this, to build your platform or however you want to approach it, where you have time to prepare for how you want to launch, yes. how you want to come out into the world, how you just, how, what kind of author you want to be. So I think the time can be an asset. I know it's hard yeah. to think about like two years from now, like, is your messaging even going to be the same? Um, <laughs> are we going to have another insurrection? Like, where are we going to be living? You know, <laughs> Civil War? Exactly. Can you, can you tell a little, uh, tell the listeners a little bit what willpower is about and who it's for? Sure. It's such a cool book. Yeah. So I am writing a book to dispel the myth that estate planning is for these moneyed legacy family type people or celebrities, if you want to bring it into today. I think when people think of estates, they think of rolling acreage and manor homes and the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and Fifth Avenue, you know, brownstones, right? Wealth has always been in the purview of a select few people that you will never be that 1% of the 1% even, you know, I think that so much of that is the norm. I want to dispel that myth because so much of estate planning, that's the use of wills and trusts and documents about your healthcare are ways that we preserve agency, are ways that we don't lose property in the court system because Nobody decided who should get the house when grandma died and now everyone's fighting. And so they sold it and they had to pay off the lawyer and they had to pay off some back taxes and they had to pay off, you know, creditors. And then there was nothing left. This is a tool that can help people with that. It's also a tool that can help people who are business owners who want to know if I get something happens to me, what happens to my business? Can I pass my business on to my kids? How do I sell it? Just all these things that we are so busy living that we're not thinking that we're not going to be here forever. Of course. We're so and busy living. We just put it off. We put it off. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a, I'm a prime example of that. I'm like, I, I am so like fly by the seat of my pants and like, well, you know, I've been uh, a freelancer, 1099 income mm-hmm. the majority of my life and like money, you know, I love, I love money and the energy of money, but you, you just, yeah, you don't want to think about those things. And I think it's had a very kind of dry or negative, not negative slant, but people don't want to talk about it. Depressing. Yeah. You're bringing, you're, you're bringing a sense of empowerment to it Mm -hmm. and responsibility to it that doesn't feel heavy. And there's humor in this book as well, which I think is, is great. Um, so in, in where you sit now, what do you hope to achieve with this book? What does success at, in this moment look like for you? Honestly, I think I, I, I got it down in, in the last week or so. I want to change the way that people have to accept, have access to estate planning in the United States. Oh, I love that. That's my big goal is I want to leave this book in people's hands and change their legacies so that they start teaching their children. Cause that's what I see at the beginning of my, when I first opened up my office, I would get people whose daddies and granddaddies <laughs> always did estate plans. Always. Whether or not they just had an acre, right. Or they had half an acre and a, a car and, you know, some house that was more than a shack. I mean, I'm not talking super wealth. I'm talking regular people who own something. I would like to make that part of the normal discourse. I will say another thing that's really controversial that's been coming up is the fact that 
in order to get estate planning, you need lawyers to help you. And my area of the law, law, when you think about old rich white guys, I have old rich white guy colleagues who have no desire or need financially or morally that's a priority to them to help the population. And so I really also want to inspire lawyers who have a heart for this to start serving this almost what 70% of Americans who don't have anything in place. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. other market would they think that that's okay? If you have an eligible population and you only service 30% of them, that's a problem. That is a problem. Can you imagine car dealers doing that? They're oh. like, you can get a Kia, you can get a Maserati, you can get a used, you know, uh, anything, every yeah. level, there's someone selling, but not in estate planning. Which is, I mean, and, and again, I think that's why it was snatched up so quickly. And there is such room for this. And, you know, when we were looking at comp titles, even the competitive mm -hmm. title section, there's really nothing else like this out there that yeah. from your experience and expertise, but also I feel like you are empowering the, the reader to be able to do this in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. Cause I feel yeah. like that sort of overwhelm, like, I don't know where to start. Or once mm -hmm. you get past the stereotype of like, you have to have a ton of money in order to do this. It's still, you're still left feeling with oh, just one more thing to do or, yeah. or you approach it like taxes, you know, just exactly. like, oh. um, you have to do it. We need to get it like taxes where you have to do it, even though you hate it, or it's not like the you top should. of your list, you have to do it. And that can be part of your mission, I think, is, mm -hmm. is really making this mandatory and not optional because it, it help it will just ease so much stress, um, that happens, um, with estate planning and after people die and leave, I mean, it's the worst I've seen it happen again and again with, you know, relatives that die or, uh, and just, I mean, it's just all a mess. It's a mess. Absolutely. It, it, it is a mess and you can either leave your family instructions and yep. a legacy, or you can leave them a mess. It's really your choice because I will say this, if you don't have anything in place, the state you live in already has a plan for you and your family and your kids. And so it is to your benefit to put your plan in place first, right? So that you don't have to default because you just didn't get to it. And I don't think a lot of people know that, that your oh. state has Every state. place. I mean, Oh no. You have an estate plan. It might not be what you want. Right. Exactly. Oh my gosh. This has been so incredible. I could talk to you forever, but we are going to end with a fun little lightning round. So no pressure, just kind of saying the first thing that comes into your mind. Okay. All right. You ready? Yes. Okay. All right. Biggest thing you've learned on your path to publication. You're going to have to edit this to make it work. But <laughs> oh, I would say that keep going until you get a no. Mm. Keep going until you get a no or keep going yeah. until you get yes? Well, both. But I when I think of the no, I think that what do you have to lose? Right. Just, you know, right. try until somebody tells you you can't go for it. I, I just think I, it might be the negative of it, but until you get a no, it's all a possibility. <laughs> I don't know. Does Even if you get a no, right? Yeah. I feel like there's, there are other options. You can self-publish. You can absolutely. You know? And that, that might be in the traditional publishing realm. If you exhaust it and you get all the no's, then go do something else. Or if you, you counter your offer, 
and they yeah. say no, then you, you have information. Absolutely. I love that. Um, favorite thing to do when you're not working. Favorite thing to do when I'm not working, we have, I live in Bentonville, Arkansas, and we have a phenomenal museum system here. Um, it's called the Crystal Bridges Museum. I know people are very black and white about the Walton family, but they're from where we are. And they have an incredible, when I tell you world-class art collection oh. that is available for the public and it is in the most beautiful, gorgeous space in the valley with a little lake in the middle of it. I love to go there. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I wish we had better museums. Um, all right, something very few people know about you. I have lived in five countries. Can you name them? Yes, I should hope so. <laughs> I already, I said earlier that I was born in Nigeria. I spent kindergarten in Dubai in 1986. I also lived in Saudi Arabia. I, um, Dubai's in the United Arab Emirates, by the way. I don't want any of your listeners who know geography to be like, that is not a country. So <laughs> I lived in the United Arab Emirates. I lived in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and I lived in Doha, Qatar all three countries in the, in the Middle East. And then I moved to Texas when I was 11. I mean, do you prefer the States or do you have a favorite? I consider myself a citizen of the world, which is my cop-out answer. I strongly believe that it is to everyone's benefit to leave this country and go see yeah, how other people live. That's what I want. You to. must. Yeah. You just have to. We're not all talking about the same thing. So it's right. just helpful to go somewhere where what's a big deal where you're from is absolutely not even on anyone's agenda. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, finish this sentence. I identify as? I identify as a disruptor and change maker. Oh, I love that. And yes, you are. Um, if you weren't an estate lawyer, you'd be? I would be some sort of other entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You ever wanted to start another business? This is my second business. I was, I had iffy sweets and treats and I can put this in the show notes. It was a small baked treats company in Austin. And I would do weddings, graduations, anniversaries. Valentine's day was one of my big um, events, um, all sorts of things for country clubs. And I would make miniature treats like cake balls when they were really in cake pops, French macarons and uh, little bite-sized treats, but I didn't do oh. cakes because I didn't want to transport layer cakes. Oh my, how did I not know that? that was amazing. And I was super I successful, but it was exhausting oh, and it paid nothing. I was a home yeah. baker. Yeah. Dude, my, my husband was a chef in a previous life and, and he, he was like, if you want to be married and have a relationship, like, nope, it's the worst, not only money, time, oh, energy. It's yes. crazy. That's so cool. I love that. You know what I would do? I think I would have a co-working space when the yeah. world reopens again, where women can come and work and we would provide childcare yeah. and it would be a one-stop shop and it would be gorgeous and it would be so tastefully appointed and have good views. And it would be a reprieve and a place where women could gather, get work done and not have to worry about childcare. I know that there are other models, but I think that would be my next business. That is, I would go in on that. Um, that I, we have talked about just that very thing, like with it, a great coffee shop. Yeah, maybe, maybe wine after five. Not like yes. you know, gross. Gorgeous. Yes. <laughs> uh, the aesthetics matter. Yes. Um, what is your favorite way to give back? 
Mm, this is such a good question. I think my favorite way to give back is with time. I know I would cop out with resources and just donating or writing a check sure. that feels, but when I can go, and this is something really, it really pains me because my kids, they have so much, they don't even realize that mm -hmm. they have everything essentially that they want or need. Um, I would love to be able to have the world open again where we can go and actually serve people. Oh, yes. Whether it's yes. I, when I used to deliver meals on wheels or read to the elderly or read to children or go actually give someone a ride somewhere, just the actual giving of your time. Cause we're like, oh, I'm so busy in my time. I just could do this instead. But I think that that, that has been stifled in this um, current climate, at least for the last two years. And I can't wait till the world opens up. So not only can I start doing that more and more, but in making my kids do it too, whether or not yes. they want to. Gosh, completely. And it's crazy because the last few years we've all We've spent these five-hour relationships every day with our phone or five hours of yeah. time on our phone, at least minimum, not yes. even the computer, not the TV. We do have time. And <sighs> I think that's what's really missing is, is that high touch one-to-one -one staring yes. at eyes, giving back. I mean, I- Giving them time. Giving them time. I mean, that's, and, and company. I mean, yes. that's what we all really crave and just real person, real in-person community. Absolutely. Um, oh, I hope we get back there. Me too. Um, what is the hardest thing about being a parent to four children? I do not know how you do that. Their fights. Yes. And the shrieking. It's just <laughs> something that I have never gotten used to. I have been changing diapers for eight years. I just want every listener to hear that. First of all, that has got to be someone's college uh, fund, or at least oh, yeah. several book proposals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that even in all that time, just the tantrums and the shrieking and the, the volume, I'm not a very loud person, but kids don't care. No. And I only have one child that is a quiet child but her tantrums are loud. So that's the hardest part for me oh. is, is, is not acting. And, and I'll tell you a funny story. I know we're almost over, oh, but no, you're good. you know, those people that get on the plane and they don't want to sit by kids. Yes. Right. So I never feel that when I'm traveling with my kids, it is what it is. But yeah. when I travel alone, I act like I do not have any children oh, and I don't yeah. even know how to be around them. Oh, I am like, <laughs> please don't sit me by that baby. I don't want to sit by that toddler. No, I and I totally don't. relate to that. I want people, I don't want people to think just because you're a mother, like you have this special I don't like ability. It. I don't like other, I mean, I, sometimes I don't even like my kid. I'm just like, what? It's tough. Cause it sounds horrible to say, but I'm like, I don't want to be around kids all the time. No, so, no, I don't I'm know. Fine. <laughs> yes. They're amazing. They are. Oh, amazing. Gosh, they really the are. Good ones are great. The good ones are great. Um, what is the best book you've read this year? How to break up with your phone. Oh my gosh. I read that. Um, have you read her new one? The power of fun. No, it's, it's so good. Um, I mean, it kind of goes hand in Into hand. Into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how to break, break up. With your phone. Phone. It's amazing. I'm reading this book Sabbath, um, which I'm, Ooh, I'm not nice. a religious person. I'm a very spiritual, but we turned off our phones, put away our computers, this, last weekend for the whole weekend. And I was like, oh yeah, I do have time for everything. And 
we are just constantly distracted, constantly distracted. I have another recommendation. It is Once I Was You by Maria Hinojosa. She's on NPR. She does Latino USA or she used to, and it's her memoir. I'm not done with it, but it is a delightful read. Amazing. That's um, what I do when I procrastinate from writing is read other people's books that have- Oh gosh, that's a, that's a great, th- that is a great with tool. what I need to be doing. Yeah, <laughs> just, like especially maybe, it doesn't have to be in your genre, but just mm-hmm. tones that you like, voices, subject matter, it, it, it's part of the whole process. Yes. Um, who has had the biggest impact on your writing or maybe what might not be a person? Oh gosh. Who has had the biggest impact on my writing? My mom is a brilliant writer. She writes the most beautiful letters that you can imagine. And in fact, I want her to start writing me letters, but When we lived in the Middle East in the 80s and 90s, her family was in Nigeria and she would write letters because internet, what? No email, right? And I have had the opportunity to receive or or read some of the letters that she has sent out just, you know, by being various places. And her command of the English language is probably the best. It's up there as the best. Honestly. And my mom is a retired science teacher. She taught biology, earth science, all the science, physics, chemistry. She's brilliant. But her command of English is phenomenal. And I, I don't think it was her first language either because um, she grew up in a village in Nigeria before she ended up being a vice principal. She's got a quite a remarkable career, but man, that woman can write. Uh, letter writing is such a lost art. It was how I kind of launched with poetry and writing mm-hmm. letters. And there's nothing like getting a handwritten letter. There's just nothing like it. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, lastly, what is the biggest piece of advice you would give to aspiring authors out there? Dear aspiring author, be <laughs> curious, be curious. Be curious about all of it. Be curious about what you want to write about. Be curious on about how to get things published if that's the route you want to go. Be curious about people you meet. Just having a mind for curiosity will never be uh, a disservice, especially the way that our climate is right now. Just, I, I wish we could be more curious about how people get to where they believe or why they believe they, the way they do or question what you believe. Just curiosity, honestly. I love that. Curiosity is everything. Ify, thank you so much. This was so incredible. If people want to find out more about you, your book, if they want mm-hmm. to work with you, how do they do that? If you would like to find out more about me or work with me or have me come speak, um, I've been really good about pitching myself. Yes, days. you have to. Yes. Being an author. <laughs> You can find me on my website, ifyibekwe.com. And um, it's being updated right now. So, um, but it's current. And so please find me there. Or you can find me on Instagram at ifyibekwe, E-S-Q, Esquire, because I'm still a lawyer for now until I become a co-working space owner. Uh, And you can find me on Twitter, sharing my Wordle. Um, I'll just Google my name. It'll come up because I've been on so many podcasts at this point. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure and I'm so excited for all that's true for you. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to Right Way Presents The Real Story. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and comment. And for more information on The Real Story and Right Way, visit rightwayco.com.